It is 586 before the Christian era, and the Babylonians have conquered the kingdom of Judah. They have raised the city of Jerusalem. They have burned the temple, and they have taken the governmental, military, and economic elites into exile in Babylon. The Babylonian exiles were granted a large measure of freedom and began to build new lives. You might recall Jeremiah said, marry them, you know, plant here, marry here, be here, and make a new life here. So after about 50 years, Persia, then under the powerful leadership of King Cyrus, became the dominant leader in the Near East. The Persians conquered the Babylonians and began a program of repatriation, sending the generation after the exiles back home to Judah. Cyrus was smart, and he knew the best way to keep his newly repatriated subjects in line, even to win their support, was to help them rebuild their lives and their institutions. So he told them to rebuild the Jerusalem temple and even gave them some money to do it. He gave them reparations, my family. And the rebuilding project started off pretty well. They were excited, they put the foundation down, they got ready to build the temple, but it didn't take long before the people began to lose courage. In 522, Darius became the king. He sent the grandson of Judah's last king, a guy named Zerubbabel, you heard all those beautiful names, to jumpstart the project. By the time Haggai comes along in 520, the temple is a little more than an outline foundation. That's all they've done, maybe a couple of layers of stone. Haggai and Zechariah are both credited with reinvigorating the rebuilding project. So over the course of about two months, the prophet's been listening to the grumbling, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. What are they complaining about? Well, the temple is not going to be as big as the other one. It's not going to be as shiny as the other one. It's not going to be as fabulous as the other one. Where's the gold? Where's the, where's the marble? What, what, what's with this peeny, teeny, not-so-shiny temple that we're about to make? Um, in the book of Ezra, a lot more appeals about this, and so we can read their grumbling and moaning in more detail. Not that we ever grumble and moan, but we'll just, we'll just read theirs. So... God says through Haggai, I'm going to give you all the things you need to build the temple. The gold is mine, the silver is mine, all the stuff is mine. Gospel choir is saying, all the stuff belongs to me. And I just want you to go do it. So they, again, they start and they stop and they start and they stop. And what begins to happen is that these people start focusing on their own house instead of the house of God. They focus on their own private world as opposed to rebuilding the house of God. There's a sense of warning in Haggai. You focus on, on your stuff instead of my stuff. Things aren't going to go as well for you. But still, I think they're being human. I mean, I, I don't want to be their psychologist, but I'll try to be their psychologist. Imagine that you've been the best of you, the brightest of you, the smartest of you, the most accomplished of you. Your people have been snatched off the land and taken to a strange place. Imagine that you've lost your identity, you've lost your way, you've lost your stuff. So what are you feeling? You're feeling anxious. You're feeling angry. You're feeling grief. And grieving sometimes causes us to be paralyzed. And we just really don't know what to do next. Y'all feeling me? 
And sometimes grieving makes us turn inward. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm going to take care of my stuff. I'm going to make sure that my house has got fresh water in case the drought comes. I'm going to make sure there's canned goods in the basement. You're feeling me. I'm going to make sure that I've got some money under the mattress. Hello. Because the banks are going to fail and the electronics are going to go away, right? That sense of, of having been through a time of doom makes impending doom feel like a real possibility. And I think that's the people of God. I think that's the people of God then. I think that's the people of God throughout time. I think for many people of God, distress, stress, sorrow, grief makes us turn in, circle our wagons, and just stick with our own kind. Does that make sense? So it was with these folks anyway. And so it seems to be with the people who are our founding parents. I'm going to call them founding fathers because they were just men. They sort of left Europe to come to found America, not discover America, but through the doctrine of discovery to come found America. And they came, I'm going to say, as people feeling oppressed. I, I don't know why they felt so oppressed with their landowning selves. But the king was the king, and they didn't want to pay taxes, and right, da 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 And so they, here they come, here they come looking for freedom, is what I'm trying to say. Here they come looking for freedom. Never mind that there were people already here. Here they come looking for freedom. And what did they do? Because they came looking for freedom, they wanted to build their own house. Not God's house, but their own house. And so it was that when Thomas Jefferson was ready to build Monticello, he built it by using 150 enslaved Africans as collateral at the bank. I say 150 human beings leveraged so he could build his big old mansion. People could be sold in those times much more easier than land, and in multiple southern states, more than eight and ten mortgage-secured loans so people could build their houses were built with enslaved people as collateral. In 1836, in Mississippi, money was exchanged hands so many times, three times, four times, eight times, to make sure that planters could keep planting cotton with enslaved Africans as labor, with enslaved Africans' bodies as leverage for buying the cotton seed. Are you feeling me, my friends? Global financial markets got in the action. When Thomas Jefferson mortgaged his enslaved workers, it was a Dutch firm that put up the money. In the Louisiana Purchase, um, which opened millions of acres to cotton production, that was financed by a British bank. Some people like to think when the slave trade was ended by, by Great Britain, that it was because people had come to good conscience and decided to not traffic in human life. But what is likely more true is that 
people washed their hands of owning slaves, but continued to profit from the slave trade because European markets gave them the money. And, you know, I'd like to say this is a southern problem. My family, mi gente, but it is not. Desperate for hands to build towns, Dutch settlers in New Netherland availed themselves of slave labor and the labor of Native American people. Founded in 1625, what would become the city of New York, our city, New Amsterdam, the Dutch West Indies Company, our people, the people who built this church, imported 11 African men in 1826 to do the building. The Dutch West India Company owned these men and their families, directing their labors to common enterprises like land clearing and road construction. 40% of New York households held enslaved people in the early 1700s. New Amsterdam and New York's enslaved put much of the local infrastructure right here in the East Village in place, including the Broadway, including the Bowery, Governor's Island, and the first buildings and the first churches, the first church, the first Dutch Reformed church built in 1628, built by enslaved Africans with money leveraged by enslaved bodies. I think we owe some reparations, my family. I think we owe some reparations. In 1711, New York City officials decreed that all Negro and Indian slaves that are let out to hire would be hired at the market house at the Wall Street Slip. Do you know what was at the Wall Street Slip? At Bowling Green, the first collegiate church. We gather in this sanctuary on Lenape land. We gather in land acquired in a so-called deal cut by a man named Peter, I just lost his last name. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. Shout it. Yes, who got the land for about $27 from the Lenape people. The people who lived on this land, who were not discovered on this land, who lived and thrived on this land, who called North America Turtle Island, we took it and we built on it and we profit from it. Now, on November 27, 2009, on Native American Heritage Day, the day after Thanksgiving, the Collegiate Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, made an apology to the Lenape. An apology to the Lenape. In a ceremony right down there at Bowling Green, they remembered Peter Stuyvesant, they remembered Peter Minuet, they remembered the deal, and exchanged wampum with the Indians and said, quote, we consumed your resources, dehumanized your people, and disregarded your culture. We express sorrow for our part in these actions. One of the Lenape elders, Carmen Makasato Ketcher, said, yes, we forgive you, but don't forget we're alive and well. We made an apology to the indigenous people. The collegiate church has not made an apology to African Americans. I'm talking reparations, my family. I think we're owed some reparations. 
we have not made an expression of remorse to African people. In fact, a slaveholder's picture hangs outside of Amanda's office upstairs. We're going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to take him down. We're going to have to take him down. And we're going to have to do some digging in our history. Like, we have to know what we know so we can fix what we can fix. We're going to have to dig into the role of the collegiate church and what role we played in the enslavement of Africans in the profiting on the back of Africans. The Dutch Reformed Church made a lot of money in the slave trade. And when we get to the bottom of it, we're going to have to do something about it. We're just going to have to do something about it. But in the meantime, Middle Church family, this part of the Collegiate Church, Middle Collegiate Church, will continue our ministries that are intended to repair the horrific damage done to indigenous people and American people on this land, African Americans on this land, amen? Gordon Drott and the consistory hired a black woman to lead this church on purpose. Jerese Johnson started the gospel choir in this church on purpose, so the sounds of blackness would ring through our sanctuary. Fifteen years ago, we vowed not just to be a happy, well-adjusted little multi-ethnic church that gave each other air kisses on Sunday morning. We vowed to be an anti-racist church on purpose. We vowed to listen to God's word in Haggai to rebuild the temple. And we understood that that temple is about rebuilding bodies. Because the latter prophets say, when we finish doing the work God has called us to do, when we've done the work of building the temple, God will reside in every life, in every body, in every soul. So we keep on working till all lives matter because all lives matter when black lives matter, amen? We joined the Black Lives Matter movement on purpose. Despite criticism from some of our beloved in the pews, we got involved in Black Lives Matter and we stay involved in Black Lives Matter. We created a racial healing task force so we could learn about our racism together in a multiracial community and think about what we're gonna do about it. And now that racial healing task force has led to a group on voters reform that just went to Virginia and did amazing work. Somebody say amen. Amazing work. And we're going to see some slides of their work and hear from Kelly in just a moment about the work they've done. We also did a reparations task force meeting uh, for four weeks this year. I don't know if all of you know that, but we are digging into this work so that our children will live a life different than the lives we've lived so far. Amen. Every year for 14 years, we host a conference to teach leaders how to grow multiracial communities that will be anti-racist in their work and mission. We go to the border on purpose. We go to Puerto Rico on purpose. We do service learning trips on purpose. The Virginia work is on purpose. We work on economic justice and a living wage with our Immokalee family on purpose. We do LGBTI justice work on purpose, gender justice work on purpose, prison reform work on purpose. We're working to close Rikers on purpose. 
We send me around the country to talk to nice white people every week on purpose. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yesterday, I was talking to some nice white people in North Carolina. It was really special. I mean, 350 people in the room, one person from Hawaii, and one Latinx, and me. Adding a little chocolate flavor to the room. They asked me to come because they think I'm going to tell them what to do. So one woman said to me, what do we want to do, Jackie? What do we need to do? I'm telling you what I told her, so I don't have to repeat it. I'm telling you, I told her, everybody has to do something. Nobody gets to be a bystander. The resistance is not a passive project. Everybody has to work to dismantle white supremacy in the United States of America and around the globe. I told her, you can do something when you're sitting at the table with your family at Thanksgiving and they do that thing they're gonna do where they go, you know, I don't know why they're still talking about racism. Things are so much better. Look at Kanye West, look at Oprah Winfrey. We've got black billionaires. Yeah, when they say that, you have to say, yeah, well, but still, the median income of a black family of four in this country versus the median income of a white family of four in this country is that the white family has 13 and a half times more wealth. Not 13%, no, 13 and a half times more wealth. I said, you're gonna have to tell short stories. Statistics are short stories. You're gonna have to say that a white man with a high school education can get out and make more money on average than a black man with a college degree. You're gonna to have to tell the truth, I told her. You're gonna to have to know the truth, read the truth, and tell the truth. And, I, and she said, but that, that could be hard, it could be, it could be difficult. Yes, it can be. But when someone is saying they and all the things that they are gonna say, you also can say, that's not my experience. I know lots of I know lots of people who are not lazy, or <laughs> that's not my experience. A lot of my queer people, my queer friends are normal as I am. You know, disrupt the story. Do not let the lie stand in the room without saying anything. That's what I told her. And then she found me after the talk and she said, Jackie, thank you so much. That was so very helpful. Thank you so much. I thought you were gonna tell me I had to give all my money away. I said, honey, that's part two, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I'm coming for the money. The prophet Haggai said, God wants you to build God's house first. God wants you to fill God's temple first. God wants you to build the place where the glory of God will reside first and then take care of your own business. Now, one way to do this sermon is to say, God, let's build, this, let's build the church. I'm saying let's build God's temple that is the world. I'm saying let's build God's temple that is America. I'm saying let's build God's temple, which is every street corner, every byway and highway, because the latter prophets say when we've done our work, God will be everywhere. We won't need sanctuaries. We won't need temples and mosques and synagogues because God's glory will reside in the hearts of all the people. That's what the prophets say. 
When we've done our work, we won't even need street lights because God's glory will shine its way through the darkness. And each of us will feel safe and healed and whole and everybody will have enough. This is our work, my people. And yeah, I need you in this movement. We need bodies to go to Puerto Rico. We need bodies to go to, to work on rebuilding that place. We need to go to the border. We need bodies to go to the border. We need people to volunteer and sing in the choir. We need people to feed people, to hold people, to love people, to shepherd people. And we need your investment, your prayers, your vision, your imagination, and your offering. We need to do this together. It's not my job. It's not Amanda's job. It's our job. It's our job. It's your job and my job to make racism something we used to talk about so that our children can grow up in a safe world where everybody's life matters because we've killed anti-black racism. We've nipped it in the bud. I'm counting on you. I'm calling you. I'm asking you to be in this movement with me. I can't be the only black girl out there talking to the white people. I need the white people to talk to the white people. Look at me, white people. If you need something to say, I'll write you a script. And I need all of us to have zero tolerance for bigotry. Zero tolerance. That's all I've got. I love you. Join me.